listen, I, I'm on hand here to tell you that there's a new trend, and you better be careful because it's going to sneak up on you. All of a sudden, you're going to be caught way off base. Yeah, I've been in certain areas lately where new trends really begin, and I'm predicting that within two years, either totally bald heads or heads with the what what used to be called a crew cut are going to be the totally in thing. I'm sorry, Larry. I'm oh, man. I'm telling you, I don't make the news. I only report it. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. Uh, in fact, uh, there's 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 a growing yeah. This because uh, after all, uh, almost everybody in a, in a what they call a pluralistic society uh, wants to be you know wants to be stand out you know to look different right. Okay, well, if you walk down the street, say if on uh, McDougal Street or Greenwich or someplace like that, man, I mean, everybody, but everybody, there's just nobody that doesn't have hair hanging down to their knees. Well, one guy walks down the street with no hair at all. There's going to be either a round of applause or a round of booze. Now, this is the fate, B-O-O-S, not Z, friend. Of course, there's them rounds, too, I don't mind that, but... Little bourbon never hurt anybody. <laughs> right kind of bourbon, but uh, nevertheless, uh, when you go walking around, you know you got you got you just gotta you gotta see it for what it is. Some guy pointed out to me the other day. He says, you know, you see all them fly, yeah, those, those smiling faces on the billboards, you know, and on those buttons, all those yellow faces. He says, uh, you know, it's a strange world where where only the buttons smile and the people don't. And there's uh, <laughs> some truth to that. So I just say, you know, that the, it's coming. It's it's uh, it's moving along. And and uh, Larry, you set that up in there because we have a we're working with Larry here tonight. And I wanted to, I want to demonstrate something. He's never seen uh, Larry's just come from the vast wilds of the Midwest, and he's never seen anybody actually play the Jews harp. Have you, Larry? Really? You never did. You ever seen one? Okay, you've seen them. Now these are not toys. If you set that up in there, I'm going to play this thing for you, and then you can hear what they sound like. All right, get it going in there. Like we'll show you, we'll show you what it sounds like. something that is kind of painful to me. I have to apologize to Philadelphia, and I know one insisted that I do this. It's just my own basic inherent conscience. And, you know, your conscience can be a real drag. I'm telling you, it's, 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 it's a bad thing. I, I wish, you know, I wish somebody, you know, some really great scientist would come up with uh, some kind of a transistorized machine. Uh, you know, it's totally battery-operated. You carry it around with you. And, uh, you plug it in anytime you need it, just turn it up, uh, and it would do its work. And I just wish some guy would come up with a with a uh, with a conscience eraser. I mean, you know, uh, 
Everybody's talking about the raising your consciousness. Of course, that's generally transcribed into common, ordinarily English means. When you raise somebody's consciousness, you are converting somebody to your viewpoint. That's called raising the consciousness. Uh, and often you have to raise his consciousness by beating him around the ears or uh, kicking him around the kidneys sometimes. But nevertheless, that's called raising the consciousness. That means making you agree with him. Nobody has ever been accused of having his consciousness raised when he disagrees with you. <laughs> you know, So, you know, that can be a drag. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I would like to suggest to the scientists out there, to any scientists listening, which I sincerely doubt, because scientists, are, you know, they're, they're, they have much more important things to do than listen to somebody else. And uh, I would like to suggest to you that if you could work on a transistorized device that could be carried in the pocket, or you could, you know, you carry it in your jeans or whatever you got there, that this device, if it could uh, counteract the, the forces that are inside of you. You see, it is a fact, you know, a physical fact, and almost all of the things that you do, like, say, if you move your arm, you ever thought about, you know, you move your arm, you do it without even thinking, see? But actually, that's a complicated thing, and, and how it works is primarily electrical. See, your brain sends out a little tiny electrical spark, and this little spark travels through the nervous system, all through the uh, you know, little points of contact there, and it travels all the way down to your fingers, see, right down to the muscle in your finger, to your arm, to your wrist, and it says, move. And at that point, uh, it will move. Well, now, if you touch something, it's the reverse, see? You, if your finger touches the top of the table, and there's a little tiny electrical impulse goes from the tip of your finger, and it roars up to your brain and says, you are touching a table. See, that uh, your brain tra uh, translates this touch. Now, once in a while, under certain drugs, uh, the shapes of those electrical impulses are changed. Therefore, when you touch a table, instead of your brain getting a table code, a little pip that says table, it gets a pip that has been distorted by drugs, and you think you're touching, say, a... Uh, a giant dragon. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly how drugs work. Or <laughs> did you know? So people think, well, they're getting greater consciousness. See, now they, for the first time in their life, they realize that a table is a dragon. Not at all. They're just getting bad. Uh, they're just getting bad messages back. See, it's uh, and uh, this this is a, in, in essence what uh, many of the hallucinogenic drugs do. It, it uh, screws up the message center there, and so. Uh, Following that same logic, uh, if you if you use uh, that type of logic, you realize that almost everything that man does is controlled by the electrical impulses in his, in his head. So uh, here you're sitting there, see, and uh, you're looking across the table at this this uh, this chick, you know, and uh, you're trying to play like uh, you're very uh, you know you're a very straight type guy. You're saying yes, of course, uh, yes, I, I do think we're having interesting weather these days. And all the while, there's something inside of you saying, Get after her, man. Make it big, see? Well, you know, you know, this is a bad thing to do because she's married to another guy and she's going with a guy who's a friend of yours and you know a whole bit, you know? Now, what is lousing up your life there? Well, it's that electrical impulse you're getting in your brain that keeps saying, That ain't a good thing to do. Now, uh... If somehow you could circumvent that electrical impulse 
with a machine that could negate it. After all, uh, electrical impulses can be changed. We all know that. You can change them by various types of uh, electronic radiation. Radio will do this, see? So you can just turn this thing up a little bit, and suddenly your conscience is gone completely. Now, I think that would be a public service machine for most of us. I think for most of us, our consciousness, our consciences, which is different from consciousness, our consciences hold us back. Now, just think how, what you could do if you didn't have any conscience at all. You ever thought about that, Larry? You think about it for a second. I mean, no conscience at all. I mean, nothing bothered you. <laughs> oh, man, you could become... Listen, that you could become the King Kong of your block. No trouble at all, see? And, uh, and you, if you could buy a machine like that that had transistors, you know, batteries, you could down in the Corvettes and get new batteries for it once in a while. When you begin to feel pangs of conscience, you know, you're down to get new batteries. <laughs> Either that or you could get one that charges itself up, you know. <laughs> but uh, all these things are part of our, our, our time. And here I'm, I'm conscience-drinking because of, uh, of something that I said about Philadelphia here a couple of weeks ago. Not that Philadelphia gave a damn one way or the other, but I do, see. And what it is, is this, and I will tell you this. I said a few weeks ago that Philadelphia is, a, is, a, is the only city in the country where the, where the people are so dedicated to booing everything that shows up. You know, they're notorious. The boo birds of Philadelphia are traditional in sporting circles. That they booed the national anthem when it would come on, you know? Well, this is not true. I have, I have just received a, a, a communique from one of our spies... And uh, some guy wrote a, a column in Philadelphia. His name is James Smart, and he writes a column called In Our Town, and he denies emphatically that Philadelphians ever have booed the national anthem. And he goes out to make a point, and I have to concede. <laughs> I have to concede. I will read this piece to you, and then you can gather your own, uh, your you know, make your own decisions on this. Of course, you know, New York leads the nation in everything. And uh, it, I, I guess I was being kind of hasty. I should have known it would be New York. He said, it is well known that wherever, whenever two or three Philadelphians are gathered together, antagonism is in the midst of them. That is true. He admits this. Our sporting enthusiasts are noted for booing. When Del Ennis, who was leading the Phillies to the 1950 pennant, hitting 30 home runs and batting 300, the fans booed him if he hit a 330-foot drive and it went foul. Eagle fans, that's true. Let me tell you what I saw once at Philadelphia. I never would believe it. Richie Allen. Now, you all know Richie Allen's a pretty damn good ball player, right? I mean, I don't... Bo I, it, it, the, the, the curious thing about Boers, and, uh, and I just, uh, you know, I've observed them all my life. I've been around Boers of all types is that Boers never boo anything that is mediocre or bad. They always boo what's good. So you would never find a Philadelphian booing a Humpty Dumpty uh, infielder who's just been brought up from, from Syracuse for the eighth time and his lifetime batting average is 189. They don't boo him at all. They just watch him. If he gets a hit, then they cheer like crazy because it's the second hit he's gotten all year, you know. Whereas it's... Richie Allen, they boo. The only reason they had a ball club is they Richie Allen. So I, I was out at the ballpark in Philadelphia one day, seeing this is what happened. I'll, I'll give you the, 
I'll give you the, uh, the, the picture here. Allen has two straight homers. First time up, first inning, pow, out of the park. Oh, he, oh, he hits them mean. He doesn't hit these pop fly homers. He hits the kind of homers that knocks guys right out of their seat. You know, if you're up there in, in the, say, up in the upper deck someplace, and he drills a home run at you, you better get out of the way. You don't, you know, circle under it, you know, like you're going to catch a pop fly, like, you know, like a Ron Swoboda homer, you know, they kind of drift up and down. His go, they go out, see. Well, he belted one, I'll tell you. He's got that clean swing. See, right out it goes in the upper deck, zap. Well, true to the Philadelphia tradition, they greeted that with thunderous silence. <laughs> you know. Oh, there were a few out-of-towners that applauded, but uh, you could just see it was half-hearted. And so the third inning comes up, and up comes Richie Allen. This time, Allen drills one to the opposite field. And if anything, this one went back even further into the stands than the first one. He really, he really caught this one in the fat part of the bat. And I'll tell you, you could hear the seats cracking and everything out there when it hit up there. See, because in, in the ballpark in Philadelphia, there were plenty of empty seats. So when that thing hit those seats out there, you could hear lumber crashing and pieces of metal flying and everything. See, so he goes trotting around the bases. The Phillies have now got two runs. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's third inning. And so he goes trotting around the bases, and again, to thunderous silence. And he goes trotting, and even from his teammates, that's what was fascinating, see, because booing is, I'm afraid, catching. It's like cold sores and infectious hepatitis. It, ca- it, it catches you. It's, a, it's all part of the mob thing, you know. It's a deadly disease, which reminds me, this is W.O.R. Over the past 32 years, Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, has become one of the great success stories in publishing history. Recently, we started a Sunday edition. And what Newsday has done so well six days a week, we're now doing just as well on Sunday. For example, the editorial page section. I'm Bob Weimer, editorial writer and columnist for Newsday. In our coverage of the news, we tell you what's happening. In our editorial page section, we try to tell you why it's happening. We call this section Viewpoints in the Daily Paper. In Sunday's expanded section, we call it Ideas. It's the place where you'll find hard-hitting editorials and the political cartoons of Pulitzer Prize winner Tom Darcy. Where Newsday columnist Patrick Owens and I often sharply disagree. Where politicians and professors and our own readers sound off. It's your journal of opinion. Newsday. Long Island's own Sunday newspaper. No service charge for home delivery. And uh, do you have that? <laughs> do you have that uh, cheap uh, guitar music for me, Larry? Please hit it there, please. We got a little business to take care of here. Yes, indeed. As TAP here has a special youth fair, and uh, they'd like to lay it on you here. Say that if you'd like to meet the kids of Italy. And uh, England, Germany, Switzerland, Denmark, and all those other places will go where they are. They're all in Portugal this year on their vacation. Because it's the place that... uh, And it's quite true. Most of the Europeans I know in Europe, and this is a fact, and that's nothing to do with commercial here, do take their vacations in Portugal. And uh, for a lot of reasons. And once you spend any time in the country, you know why. But for $210 round-trip economy airfare, you can... 
used this ticket for a year. The ticket is good for a year, and it's the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, TAP, and it's $210 isn't bad at all. And you'll see the whole country, I mean, as far as you want to see it. The prices are low, the food is great, and the people move real nice. Call your travel agent or TAP at 421-8500 for complete information about TAP's $210 youth fair. That's $210 youth fair to Portugal. So go where the Europeans go on their vacations, Portugal. Thank you, thank you. That's very nice, Larry. You play that real good. Anyway, I'd like to, uh, you know, this... this the scene, see, it was, it, was, it, was a very, it was a very dramatic scene for me because the psychology of the boor is, to me, a, a, an extremely interesting thing to watch. Uh, he's a special type. Not everybody boos. Do you agree with that, Larry? Not everybody does. And those who do generally have very fat necks. Uh, comes from years of booing. You know, you could just see their, 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 their throat swell and the, you could see the the veins on their neck stand out when it, when he's really getting into it, when he's really pushing the old diaphragm into it, you know, and he's booing good. Well, it is the third inning, and Richie Allen has belted one out of the park. Well, they were playing the Chicago Cubs, and, uh, you know, the, the Phillies were deep in, in one of their usual losing streaks, and, and it was a quiet afternoon out there, and the Cubs were were going along, and I think somebody like Randy Hundley or somebody, he belted one out, and there were a couple of other runs scored. Now here you got the score is 3-2 to two going into, I believe it was the first of the eighth inning, and Richie Allen comes to bat. They're one run behind. Richie Allen has accounted for all the runs that Philadelphia has. It's 3-2. to two. He's hit two home runs out. See, all the other Humpty Dumpties were going out, pop flies, strikeouts, once in a while, a guy would just sulk and wouldn't come up to bat, and they'd call him out. Uh, you know, the usual Philadelphia ball player scene. Well, up comes Richie Allen. This is his third third time up in the game, see. He's now batting about three seventy four uh, in the season. Uh, his combined run production, uh, his, his run production alone, uh, amounting from home runs, runs scored, and all of it, Triple the entire team's run production. He has driven most of the runs that year. <laughs> he has scored all the rest. And, you know, there he is. He caught all the flies in the outfield. He's been doing it all. So, anyway, Richie Allen is now is now up for the third time. See, and I lean forward in my seat. The score is 3-2. to two. And the first pitch goes by, and it is a ball. Allen looks it over. The second pitch is inside and over the corner of the plate. And it's a strike. I heard a few tentative boos at that point. Well, Alan says nothing. He just puts his hand on the top of his batting helmet, you know, pushes it down a little tighter. He spits, kicks the dirt around, and he digs in at the plate. He's waiting for the next pitch. The pitcher, by the way, who was Ferguson Jenkins, ain't no fluke himself, you know. So Jenkins rears back, and he lays one down over the outside corner, Allen reaches out, and he tagged it. He hit that ball as hard as any ball I've ever seen hit. It whistled right over the second baseman, just like a shot. It was almost, almost invisible. It was a blur. And that ball hit in front of the left fielder who was cutting over. He picked that ball up, 
and the center, they were all shifted for him. See, the, the left fielder grabbed that ball on the first hop. It was a single. And to a man, the Philadelphia Bluebirds opened up. Allen had not hit a home run. <laughs> and it was, it was a glorious thing to see. I mean, uh, this, this is a true bluebird at work. Uh, a bluebird rarely boos a failure. In fact, uh, he doesn't often recognize a true failure. He, he, uh, that's just one of his problems. See? <laughs> he often boos success, and I suspect this is because of his own basic failures himself human beings. Nothing gets them more angry than a guy that does it. And so, uh, they, they, they boo. So you hear, boo, 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 you know, can't boo, you bum. They're yelling out, hey, send them back to Syracuse. And they're booing. And you can just hear these boos echoing throughout the stadium. And Allen is standing on first. He does nothing. He just, you know, hits his batting helmet on the top. And he spits down in the coaching box. He just looks around. It, uh, I could just sense, I could just sense that feeding, that radiation that was going between Allen and the boo birds. Of course, Allen at that point then was was provoking more boos because he obviously didn't give a damn. That makes a boo really mad. <laughs> so Allen, so so I this little drama that I witnessed out there was was true creative booing, and and yes, uh, it, it's easy to boo a guy that you know drops a pop fly. But when you, when you boo a guy who's gotten three hits out of the four that your team has that day, that's creative booing. That takes guts. So anyway, this writer, Smart, goes on to say, he says, Eagle fans once threw snowballs at Santa Claus when he came out on Franklin Field. <laughs> I'm just quoting. I'm not making it up here. Fans of the 76ers once bounced a beer can off a rival coach's head. Flyers fans have been in fights with players from other hockey teams. The fans get up and start fighting, see? A crowd at a 1931 World Series game in Shibe Park booed President Hoover. <laughs> One giant boo. Not only sports fans are antagonistic, a mob of Philadelphians threw rocks at Mayor Dilworth. A man at the Schubert Theater once shocked the cast of Broadway actors by jumping up in the seat and hollering, Speak up, you bums! <laughs> That's Philadelphia. But New York, always a close second to Philadelphia culturally, finally outdid the staid old Quaker City in the Boo Bird Department. Last week, an audience of New Yorkers hissed the national anthem played by Van Clyburn in Carnegie Hall. And this writer says, how is that for brass belligerence? It was reported by Robert Sherman in his music review in the New York Times. Quote, many in the full house were startled and some annoyed when Mr. Clyburn opened the program with the Star Spangled Banner. One woman in a stage seat pointedly refused to rise and a few listeners were rude enough to hiss, Sherman wrote. A spot check with the owners of some of the most durable memories in our sports and entertainment departments here at the Bulletin in Philadelphia produced a unanimous opinion. No Philadelphia crowd can be remembered of having booed the national anthem. Philadelphians, true, have booed little kids not doing well in a pre-baseball Easter egg hunt. <laughs> they have. That's a famous incident. Poor kids out there, you know, they were failing. 
they booed this year's stadium opening when Kite Man hit an air pocket in the upper deck, little caring that he'd broken his ascent on their behalf. Philadelphians are on record as having booed every American institution except peanut butter, Shirley Temple, trout fishing, and Sunday school picnics. But a New York crowd in Carnegie Hall has stolen the Boo Bird honors for 1972. The Times critic, being a music critic and not a booing critic, made no effort to analyze the motives of the anthem hissers. Was the hissing of the Star Spangled Banner a protest against Mr. Nixon's latest improvement in our Southeast Asian activities? Was it because the music isn't a particularly good piece of music? The anthem? Even for a national anthem? Was it because Van Cliburn didn't play it well? Or was, <laughs> that's a good idea. Or was the hissing a reflection of a frequently heard complaint that it cheapens the national anthem to use it as the overture for all sorts of commercial events? Well, whatever the answer, the fact remains that New York has reached a new plateau in the Boo Bird Field. The mighty boors of Philadelphia must now look to their raucous vocal laurels. Hissing the national anthem is such a peak of audience rudeness that the Philadelphia Boo Birds may have to go into training and work up to it gradually. Perhaps they could start by booing the Spectrum's Kate Smith record of God Bless America which is sometimes, I felt like booing that myself. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> which is sometimes substituted for the national anthem before hockey matches. But even that needs a little mental preparation. The Philadelphians might phase into it by, say, uh, booing uh, golden slippers at the Mummers Parade or shouting, uh, dry up at the Festival of Fountains. The Carnegie Hall Bunch has issued a clear-cut challenge. What now, Philadelphia boo birds? Well, you know, Philadelphia's a fascinating city. Uh, I mean, it's called... See, it's in keeping with that, that uh, Shepard's famous 180-degree uh, phase shift theory, which basically stated is this, that almost anything that proclaims itself loudly, one thing, whatever that thing is, is almost invariably true that the actuality is 180 degrees the opposite. So if a person comes up to you and says, I am a loving person, they ain't. Anytime anybody has to say that, they ain't. Think about that, Larry. Listen, there's an old, there's an old, uh, among, uh, among highly, <laughs> among highly, uh, how can I put it, uh, experienced Lotharios. There's an old rule of thumb. Anytime a chick tells you she loves you every five minutes, I would be worrying. Don't show up without knocking one day. You're liable to find the television repairman under the bed. That's all I got to say. <laughs> and, and, and this is the truth, you know. And yet, yet most people, you know, they 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 they, um, they take words literally. So if a guy keeps saying to you, you know, I'm a very sensitive person. I I, I really I'm sensitive. I'm really. Uh, have you ever thought about a friend? I'm really sensitive. <laughs> I'm sen That's the one thing he ate. He's got about as much. Sensitivity is a turtle in heat. And that ain't much. So, uh, the city of brotherly love, which has always prided itself, it even has it written all over sides. That's one thing it ain't got. <laughs> brotherly love. In fact, did you know that, that of course, you, you know the, the recent, the, the hassle about the 1976, you know, they've been talking about having our, our 200th uh, anniversary as a country. It's uh, 1976, you know, it's going to be 200 years since 1776. And naturally, Philadelphia would be the city that they would have it in, you know, this is all this stuff. They got into such a hassle 
that the entire city of Philadelphia was in such a gigantic argument as to where they were going to have it, when they were, what, what kind of buildings they were going to have, who was going to give the first speech, who was going to cut the ribbon, that they finally said, forget it, and they're not doing it. <laughs> what a fascinating city. But uh, uh, I'll tell you, though, for, 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 uh, for curious uh, cities when it comes to uh, reactions to strange things, I say that the obvious, to me, uh, most people have only lived in one or two cities, so they don't really have much to, to uh, they don't have much to compare it to. Chicago has some fantastic uh, local folk mores, which you don't even hear about as a New Yorker. One of them, for, for example, they used to have big parades, see, a tremendous parade, and it's, a, and, a, and it's a holiday in the city there. It's a big holiday which you never hear of. It's not a national holiday. It's just a holiday, see? And uh, the holiday really is basically built on the theme, thank God I am a Chicagoan day. <laughs> I mean, and they, they actually, thousands of guys would parade up and down the streets, you know, the plumbers and the guys that work in the electrical union and the guys, you know, that, that uh, work in the American Union, all the whole bunch, see? Big, big signs, big parades, and they have these big, enormous floats that say, thank God I am a Chicagoan. Well, now that's a local, that's uh, a local thing. I I, uh, I never felt particularly <laughs> groovy about living in Chicago and all that crud blowing in from the steel mills and <laughs> you know and all that stuff. But nevertheless, this is a this is a local thing. Now, New Yorkers they have their own things uh, which which have to be explained to natives. You know, the natives of other cities who come to us occasionally they don't realize that with the New Yorker, uh, an argument is a form of fun. Uh, that's the first thing you get to learn. So you're sitting in a cab, see, and, and it sounds to an outsider like you're having an argument with a cab driver. You are not. Uh, you are actually just passing the time of day with a cab driver. So, so a typical argument will break out over anything. See, like, uh, like for example, if you uh, the guy's a Shea Stadium nut, you know, you, you notice. Know see, he's he's a, he's a Met fan. He's got the Mets on, and uh, you're riding along. This typical little incident in New York, and you say to the guy in the front seat, he's driving along, like this happened to me, see. I said, uh, boy, uh, you know, it's been fascinating what's been happening to the Yankees. He's listening to the Mets, see, this little funny thing, I could see his neck get a little red. And I'm just making conversation, I figure he's interested in baseball. See, again, that, that's the outsider's view, he doesn't really recognize that a, a Met fan is not interested in baseball. He's interested in the Mets. The two are totally different things. Just like most Jet fans couldn't care less about football, it's Joe Namath they like. That's a, that's a different thing. So <laughs> we're riding along, and I said, gee, it's uh, terrible what's been, you know, it's really bad what's been happening to Yankees, you know, like that. He turns around, he says, well, what about the bombs? Who cares about a damn Yankee? Get out of bombs out. Yankees, what are you talking about the Yankees? I said, well, wait a minute, uh, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, I figured I'd bait him. See, if you have your choice in, a, in an argument like that, either you say, "Yeah, that's true," <laughs> that's, that's true. Huh? Uh, how's uh, Seaver doing today? Uh, then, of course, then you're back in normal train of thought with him, and everything's cool. But I figured I was going to bait him. See, so you know, I'm, I'm paying afraid. I figured, what the hell? I might as well take the the negative side of the argument. After all, the meter's ticking, and I'm paying. So I said. Uh, 
Uh, you know, you, you don't you don't take those Mets seriously. That's nothing but a bunch of guys out there parading with the signs. Uh, you know, a bunch of kids yelling, and I love the Mets. Uh, <laughs> he turns around, his eyeballs are popping like he's, you know, like a trapped on toad frog. You know, like, what the hell am I doing here talking about the Mets? He says, what are you, a Yankee fan? Well, I said, well, yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I am a Yankee fan. I never, I ain't met no one of them for years. He said, you mean you're actually a Yankee fan? I said, yes, I am. He said, oh, come on, you're putting me in. You're kidding. Well, of course, you realize that's the New Yorker's phrase, you're kidding, can be used a thousand different ways. It can be used to denote incredulity. It can be used to denote even admiration, like, you're kidding. Uh, <laughs> and so he, he, was, he, he was totally incredulous. He couldn't believe that, that, you know, that somebody would not be a Met fan, see? So he said, oh, come on, you're kidding. I said, uh, no, I, I, I like the Yankees. You know, I, I think I think if the Yankees uh, got a couple of good pitches, uh, you see, I slipped right away to the vernacular. If the Yankees got a couple of good pitches, now I tell you what they ought to have done. If if they had, if they'd gotten rid of Horace Clark and if they had had any any kind of luck at all, they could have picked up somebody like uh, maybe Louis Appreciate. They could have had, somebody, had an infield. You know, turns to me, and he says, "Are you putting me on?" I said, no, I'm not. I'm a Yankee fan. He said, I've been out to the Yankees for years. I went cutting near them bumps. Ah, <laughs> Yankees. What's the name of this guy? Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Boink? Something like that. Got a long hair? <laughs> you call that guy general manager? <laughs> that guy said, find Yogi. That's what they did. Find Yogi. I said, that's true. They did find Yogi. I said, I stand accused. That was a bad thing to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Of course, now see, I'm mollifying him, see, I'm playing with him like a... Yeah, that's right, so then, you know, you want a penny, the last penny they want, what are you doing, they fire him. So that's right. Did you know, come to think of it, he said, yeah, Yankees are pretty good, actually, you know, I said, uh, a lot of people, I take them up to the stadium once in a while, I said, I, I take them up there, so I don't figure they, they, they're really good for the Yankees, they're always going up there for the, uh, they had a bat day, you know, they go up there for the bats. They got a bad day. They got a ball day and a cap day, and uh, you know they're going to have a free home plate day. They're going to have a giveaway a cake day. Uh, you know they're going to give away money day. Uh, they don't go up there to see the Yankees. I said that's that's true. That's probably no. I said I go. I have three baseball caps now. I go up there and I wear my short shoes and I get in. You know I get one of these free caps. Uh, I can understand that. So now we've been going. You know back and forth. Neither one of us remember anything of the conversation. <laughs> so finally, so finally, I come up to the, to my, you know, 40th Street where I'm getting out, and I give the guy the dough, and uh, he's nice talking to you, nice talking to you. Always like to hear, but you know, the other side of an argument, it's really good to hear about that. You know, once in a while, you gotta keep your mind open, right? I said, yeah, you're right, right. You gotta keep your own mind open. You gotta keep thinking. He said, right, right. <laughs> Off he goes, you know, the cloud of dust and. Pieces of tin falling off his car. You know, he's back in a fight. So uh, <laughs> this is a typical New York scene. Now, to an outsider, they would not recognize that this is not an argument that's going on here. We're speaking as two fellow New Yorkers. And the two fellow New Yorkers, they're always that way. Now, you can create any argument you want in New York by taking any position on Lindsay. Any position. Any position. So, you say, you get in a cab scene, you say, you know, one thing we got going for us in this city. And the guy's going to look around, he's going to say, what is that? 
And you say, you know, weren't lucky to have a guy like Lindsay as mayor. Okay, you're all set for a conversation now for the next nine hours. You agree with that, Larry? Now, on the other hand, <laughs> if you want to start a different kind of conversation, you get in the, get in the cab scene and say, you know, I'll tell you, there's only one thing wrong with this damn town. And he's going to turn. Well, what's that? He figures you're going to attack cab drivers, see? There's only one thing wrong. Boy, this bum Lindsay. This town used to be great before Lindsay. Then he's off, see? <laughs> and then you got another 45 minutes of, of stuff going. So you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta, no matter where you go, you gotta realize that uh, that there are local, let's put it this way, folk customs, local folk customs. Now, if if you live out in the Midwest, as you know, Larry, you just come from the Midwest, and if you walk around in the Midwest and you say, you know, the one place that I would like to live is New York, that's an incredible statement to anyone outside of New York. They think you're crazy. You obviously are putting them on. I mean, they, they can't believe that anyone would... Because one of the great basically held tenets to all people living in the Midwest is that New York, you've heard the expression, New York is a great place to visit, but, it, oh, I sure wouldn't want to live there. Well, if you come out and say, you know, I'd really like to live in New York, I'll tell you, oh, man, you got yourself set up for the whole summer. Arguments, battles, yelling... Uh, you know, people say, yeah, what's, what's happening to Larry? You know, there's something wrong with a guy. You know, what's going on with him? He's got some personal problems. I don't know what it is with him, you know? <laughs> Can't be that he just simply would love to live in New York. And so, so I have to, I have to always take that into account. See, as a guy who travels around a great deal, huh? A guy who travels around, I, 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 I always blend into the local scenery, wherever it is, see? I take the local, I take the local attitude. So, when I walk around in Gary, Indiana, or Hammond, Indiana, the first thing I say, first thing, I get off the bus or the streetcar, whatever it is, see, I say in a very loud voice, boy, oh boy, am I sure glad to be out of New York. Let me tell you, uh, I sure is a great place to visit, but I sure as hell, boy, it's rotten living there. Oh, boy, violence everywhere. I may be telling this to a guy who just mugged four people, see. Uh, he doesn't, you know, so he feels good about it right away. Now, I get back here in New York, and the first thing I say is, I'll tell you this, gang. <laughs> oh, man. Sure great to be back in New York. I'll tell you, I have to agree with W.C. Fields when he said, uh, uh, any place outside of New York is out of town. Then they, they feel warm, see. So you have to, you have to cater to, <laughs> you have to, you have to cater to everybody's hang-ups. Now, if you don't have any of these uh, these natural uh, feelings of uh, of uh, total chauvinism inside your gut, if you personally don't have them, you're liable to be having you know a lot of problems. You're always also incidentally liable to turn into a humorist. Now, listen carefully <laughs> when I say that 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 almost every humorist that I know who's working is a humorist. Almost every one is a guy who feels no natural loyalty to any given thing. So he looks at almost everything with the cold light of reality. Other people look at the thing with the cold, softly burning light of total sentimentality. So uh, a humorist is, is a guy who's going to be booed by everybody, ultimately. He may be applauded for the first five jokes, but it's the last three that get him. And so... <laughs> So, so oh, oh yes, it's very complex. So, so uh, a true humorist. Now, I'm not talking about a comic. Now, most comics do not do that. Most comics are a different thing. 
most comics work to the prejudices of their audience. So if you're working the Sands Hotel, you know, you make a whole bit about all the, all the squares who don't come to the Sands, see? <laughs> and so, uh, and so it, that's not a humorist. That's a comic. Very different thing. Oh, no. Humorist is something else. Jonathan Swift was primarily a humorist, I would have to say. I would have to say Voltaire was primarily a humorist. That's why he was chased in and out of France periodically, depending on what he said last. Uh, <laughs> and that's right. And, and, and so a humorist, and, and he never he never holds a position. That's another thing. Say, uh, a classic example of a of a comic who who had a position and lost out because it changed was uh, Mortsall. Uh, Mortsall's whole career was based on Eisenhower. Eisenhower left off. Forget it. So the ball game is over. And, uh, you know, it's not easy. Just think of the number of industries that are going to go out of business the day the Vietnamese war is actually over. My God, button factories are going to close. You're going to find poster plants all of a sudden poverty-stricken. You're going to... Can you imagine the number of people who won't have anything to do Sunday afternoons? I mean, all those great rallies. And the <laughs> bullhorn manufacturers are going to suddenly have a terrible... Uh, a terrible... Uh, um, it's going to be an awful uh, depression set in in the bullhorn industry. And all these things, see, the, oh, yeah, it's all, we're, let's face it, the, we, we love adversity. Oh, sure. It's a, and, I, and I think 50 years from now, old codgers are going to sit around and talk about the good old days when they used to march. You know, <laughs> they used to be in the peace march, or they used to be in this march. Yeah, they'll get all dreamy-eyed. And the guys at that period say, oh, come on, quit talking about all that old, who cares about that stuff? What do you mean? And the guy said, oh, but you don't understand. It's just like the guys who, who must have been in the Whiskey Rebellion. You know, great things like that. The Boer War. Can you imagine a guy who was in the Boer War? Nobody cares about the Boer War. <laughs> he, could go, he could talk for a hundred years. And who the hell's going to listen, you know? But uh, this, these, are, these are all part and parcel of, of uh, I should say, the, the constantly revolving, uh, uh, wearing blend mix of existence, time, and reality. Ancient is on time, you know? And so the, the humorist, of course, is attached to no time. He's attached to no creed. <laughs> He's attached to no... He has no known heritage. He belongs to no known ethnic group. And for that reason, he's constantly and continually in a feeling of unease with every group and all. All groups. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nothing makes me unhappier and sadder than to be with a group of people who are nostalgists. Which sounds like, oh, boy, you remember the good old days? Oh, boy, do you remember them? Oh, you remember Howdy Doody? Oh, was that great? Oh, you remember the Mouseketeers? Oh, yeah, I do. It was terrible. Uh, but so so you got you got to realize that the, that the, each one of us, in his own time, makes a devilish attempt to attach ourselves to some kind of a ship of fools. Now, if some guy didn't get a hold of the a trailing rope and nobody threw him a life raft and he didn't get a hold of one of the life preservers and never got on the ship and now he's just swimming. The humorist can be viewed as a man who is continually swimming all by himself across the vast gulf of, of time and life. All the other people are in boats of various sizes. I mean, you know, some of them are dancing up on the top deck and others are down on the bottom in the steerage. 
getting ready to overthrow the guys on the top deck and all the way up and down, see? But the humorist is a guy who's quietly swimming all by himself, and he has no flag attached to his head. Because somewhere along the line in the big deluge, he lost his flag, his badge. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry, Larry. W.O.R. New York, and we have Lester Smith in the news coming up. This is the news in detail on the hour from the W.O.R. newsroom. Two railroad bridges in North Vietnam destroyed today by American guided bombs. And according to a United States military spokesman in Saigon... The bombs were the laser beam-guided devices. Eight other bridges and two fuel depots elsewhere in the north were also hit by American air power. On the other side of the Vietnam border, there are still some communist forces around the south provincial capital of An Lac. Today, they opened fire with mortars on civilian refugees fleeing the town. Twelve were killed, thirty wounded. At Da Nang, a rocket attacked just before midnight against the United States air base left three civilians dead and 15 Vietnamese and six Americans wounded. Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield, a recent visitor to Peking, has warned of any active entrance by China into the Vietnam War if United States bombing attacks get too close to the Chinese border. But that warning was tempered in a reply today from the State Department. A spokesman remarked that American bombing of North Vietnam near the China border is not in any way intended to threaten China's security. Details on paper were given today by President Nixon to the Senate on the Washington-Moscow nuclear arms limitation agreements. In asking for ratification, the President repeated his assurance to the Senate that the pacts do safeguard American security. Mr. Nixon went beyond the usual message to the Congress in support of his foreign aid policy. He asked members of five Senate and House committees to meet with him on Thursday for a complete discussion on the agreements. Social Security changes completed in the Senate Finance Committee. That bill would raise Social Security benefits 10% and finance that boost by upping the payroll tax. And so by 1973, $581...